Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we've got a very special sponsored episode. Yeah. Thank you so much to Holly, who gave us quite the topic to sink our teeth into. If you, like Holly, want to support us by getting us to talk about your favorite archaeological or anthropological stuff, it's actually really easy. Just go to paypal.me slash the dirt podcast. And for a single donation of $25, we will research and present the topic that you include in the notes section of the PayPal form. Yep. Some conditions apply. And if you want to support us in other ways, keep listening, keep telling folks about us, and leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. That one's really helpful since it helps new listeners to to find us. So thank you. Yeah. So um, what was this topic that Holly was in the market for? Oh, excellent phrasing, because mm-hmm. today we are talking about illegal trade in antiquities and uh, the black market. Dun, dun, dun. But seriously, this stuff is really important and can be incredibly damaging to cultural groups around the world. So thank you, Holly, for this topic. Yeah. And so to uh, get us started, we're going to look to National Geographic for some um, slightly sensationalized scene setting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> full, full dramatic reading, if you please. From murderous temple thieves in India to church pillagers in Bolivia to hundred-man bands of tomb raiders in China's Liaoning province, looters are strip-mining our past. Like most illegal activities, looting is hard to quantify. But satellite imagery, police seizures, and witness reports from the field all indicate that the trade in stolen treasures is booming around the world. Over the past two decades, and so this is written this decade. So yes, over the yes, past two, <laughs> over the past two decades, a series of high-profile court cases and repatriations have exposed the dark side of the antiquities trade, bringing to light criminal networks of diggers and traffickers who sell looted artifacts to Madison Avenue galleries and renowned museums. In 2002, Frederick Schultz, a prominent Manhattan dealer in ancient art, was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison for conspiring to receive stolen Egyptian objects. In 2006, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, under pressure from the Italian government, agreed to return the famous Euphronius Crater, a wine-mixing bowl looted from an Etruscan tomb near Rome. And in recent years, conflict and chaos in many antiquities-rich countries, culminating in the sack of ancient Mesopotamia by the Islamic State, ISIS, has sparked concern (laughs) that the antiquities trade is helping fund terrorism. Yep. Um, So we'll get a little bit more into that later on. But apart from funding terrorist groups, why, I mean, and that's a big one. There's no getting away from, that is a big one. But why is looting and the antiquities market, why are those things harmful to archaeology? Well, 
One of the things primarily is loss of prevenience. So first of all, to um, get these terms straight, prevenience is the information that tells us where an artifact comes from, its literal coordinates, its context in an archaeological site, and provenance is basically a, a chain of ownership. So an item may have provenance, but no prevenience. Um, and the thing about loss of context is um, archaeological information derives primarily from context. Um, without knowing exactly where it came from, what it was next to, how it was lying, you know, where, where it was, um, without that stuff, an artifact can be relatively meaningless, but um, and we will link to this on the show notes, but a, an incredibly thorough blog post from the Penn Museum um, presents us some food for thought. So this is quoted from there. Yeah, from their magazine yes. expedition. Mm -hmm. For all artifacts, there is also at least some information to be gained from study of the objects themselves. This is particularly true of, quote, art objects with their rich imagery and iconography. Thus, the increasing quantity and quality of looted, quote, antiquities, end quote, presents a genuine dilemma to scholars, but especially to art historians. To what extent is archaeological context indispensable in the analysis of ancient art? Should this vast corpus of looted material be ignored because its archaeological context has been lost? Or, with the damage of looting irreparably done, should not efforts be directed at trying to salvage from these materials as much information as possible? And, I mean, these are questions for which we don't really have answers. We, we have our own opinions. I mean, I am not much of an art historian, despite my undergraduate degree. <laughs> um, but, I don't know. It's a tough question to pose. Like, what what use is is that iconographic or art information if we don't have, if we can't prove exactly where it came from? You know. Well, yeah. Then it's just art. It's not archaeology, right? And you can't say anything about the culture that produced it, but you can enjoy it, I suppose, for itself. Yeah. And if you're not interested in who produced it or why they produced it or what, like, what was like what was gained by producing it um, and you're just interested in the way it makes you feel when you look at it then yeah, okay <laughs> yeah yeah but a lot is certainly lost when when context yeah. is lost yeah and so um trying to avoid such loss is what um undergirds a lot of the laws or protections that are now currently in place to protect archaeological sites and material. Undergirds. That's a good word. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks. Um, and so most of these, we're going to go over a few now, but most of these are in the United States. And so this governs yes, very... what happens in the United States or mm -hmm. what comes into the United States, with one exception, and we will get to that in a second. Yep. Yep. Um, and so the first up uh, is the Antiquities Act of 1906. Still and early. so this this comes from the National Park Service website. The Antiquities Act was developed during the late 19th century, a period of public interest in archaeology and increasing concern for the preservation of sites in the United States. It establishes the protection of archaeological materials on lands owned by the United States. So public lands. Mm -hmm. Um and the act sets up penalties for the unauthorized collection or excavation of historic or prehistoric ruins or monuments situated on federal land. 
Um, as the first U.S. law to provide general protection for culture or natural resources, it was also the first national historic preservation policy. It empowers the president to set aside historic landmarks, historic or prehistoric structures, or other objects of historic or scientific interest on lands controlled by the federal government as national monuments. The federal agencies assigned to oversee them are required to offer proper care and management of the resources. This includes caring for the objects collected from sites in a museum so the public can view them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The law also regulates and establishes a permit system for legitimate study of archaeological resources. Legitimate study means that only people and projects that qualify under the Secretary of the Interior's guidelines may conduct archaeological investigations. Permitted activities are for the benefit of the public through study and interpretation. The department overseeing the land, such as the Department of the Interior, issues permits. These requirements protect archaeological resources from looting. Yep. Except during government shutdowns. Right. And uh, next up... A couple decades later, we've got the Historic Sites Act of 1935, um, and that declared the preservation of historic sites, buildings, and objects to be a national policy. So you've got like the um, National Historic Register. Um, this all came out of that. A beloved building in my hometown just got there this week. Oh, so it gets congrats. a little plaque. Yeah. Congrats, the Golden Rule. Yeah. Yay. And more importantly, they get tax credits on oh, the that's, affordable that's housing. That's nice that's happening yeah that they're installing in it um and then um after a bit in 1974 there's the archaeological and historic preservation act ah huh? <laughs> um, of 1974 <laughs> and ah huh? uh, builds on the historic sites act of 1935 and makes federal agencies responsible for mitigating the damage caused by their actions to important archaeological sites so I'm glad that it took them 40 years to be like, oh, no. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then that um, not just U.S. exception that I mentioned up at the top of this. In 1970, there was the UNESCO Paris Convention. Uh Um, And this one is this is a big one. Yes. Big. Yes. Um, And so rather than really diving into it, I'm just going to give you the. The macro points here. I mean, um, we will include the link if you really want to take a big old yeah. deep dive into our, all the articles. Um, and so the 1970 convention requires its states parties to take action in these main fields. Number one, preventative measures. Um, inventories, export certificates, monitoring trade, imposition of penal or administrative sanctions, educational campaigns, etc. Uh, to prevent these things from being being damaged, looted, um, or trafficked to begin with. Restitution provisions, number two. Taking appropriate steps to recover and return any such cultural property imported after the signing of this convention. Um, and then three, international cooperation framework, which is the idea of strengthening cooperation among and between states' parties is present throughout the convention. So before this... Um, Unless there were um, national laws um, that were put in place before, a lot of the materials that were excavated in other countries just left and just like came back to uh, where they were uh, studied. Mm -hmm. So where the people who excavated them were based. And so after 1970, you see a very drastic change in how archaeological materials move. 
Right. Uh, yeah. If nothing else, it became inconvenient. Um, even if there weren't like local laws in place, like national laws in terms of the export. Right. Um, and it comes like, along with all the bureaucracy that you might expect and, and forms and permits. And but yeah, it's a good oh, no. system that's in I place. Think that, it's just... I think that making things inconvenient is a great way to deter yeah. bad behavior. <laughs> so it's just. Uh, and so then a few years later, we got the. Back to the USA, we got the Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987. <laughs> I enjoy this one. Um, the ASA establishes government ownership over most abandoned shipwrecks in the nation's rivers, lakes, and offshore in the ocean out three miles from the coast. Yep. Otherwise, it's in international waters. Yes, it and is. And then it's Poseidon's. Um, the, the majority of the shipwrecks covered. <laughs> the majority of the shipwrecks covered by the statute are significant historical resources that tell compelling stories about our regional, national, and international maritime history. Or, if nothing else, they tell you this boat sank. Yep. What did Izzy just tell you? That was Heidi, and she just oh. told me that her sister bit her. <laughs> <laughs> um. Equally important, um, the physical remains of their hulls and superstructure are vital biological habitat for marine life and contribute to state, capital S, state heritage tourism by offering spectacular recreational <laughs> and educational opportunities. Like how to not sink a boat. Well, and like fishes. Yeah. Um, for these reasons... The law places the resources under government management and says that neither the law of salvage, nice, nor the law of fines apply to the resources. Um, this means the shipwrecks are protected from exploitation by commercial salvagers and makes the wrecks available for the enjoyment of the public and fishes. Oh, that um, said, also, I saw an interesting poster at the SAA um, that was talking about sort of next steps after this like once you reserve the the historic shipwreck for for public enjoyment um you have to take steps then to preserve it because the poster was showing um how public viewing and like scuba diving and using the historical shipwreck in it wasn't i think it was like in new hampshire or something um anyway okay. it was um sort of scuba tourism and, and diving tourism was damaging the the boat you got to continue protecting them once you've established protection in, in law. Interesting. Yeah. And then rounding out our tour of laws, uh, we've got NAGPRA, which was enacted in 1990. And so NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection and, protection repatriation. and repatriation Act. There we yep. go. It's like... <laughs> um, and so... What's the <laughs> You may have noticed, so you may have noticed in these others that a lot of these were enacted before the internet really got got going. Mm, yep. um, and so it is a terrifying new world out there now with social media connecting us far more closely than is probably good for any of us, but that is not the subject of this podcast. Nope. Um, but let's get real. That connectedness and the anonymity that can come with being behind a screen. And being able to just make up a social media account um, can cause some major issues for those trying to protect world cultural heritage. So, Anna, help with the social media. <laughs> that's that's my job for this podcast. <laughs> it's my job for our whole 
Our whole deal. Our whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Help. Social media. Okay. So it's not a new thing that illegal goods are being bought and sold online pretty much since the internet. What? Oh no! <laughs> Did I? Oh, what is? Are there cracks in your worldview now? Like, um, like, like drugs? Like, like the drugs? Like stolen goods? Like, like bootleg Coldplay CDs? <laughs> I'll continue on, shall I? Um, so, for years, illegal goods have been bought and sold online, but the growth of social networks and e-commerce platforms, coupled with the recent industrial-scale looting by Islamic State across the Middle East, has brought a stream of stolen antiquities online, often being offered to unsuspecting buyers. Um, I should note here, this is from an article in the Wall Street Journal. Law enforcement officials say the online outlets have become a vexing challenge as they battle a wave of looting that is stripping heritage sites of ancient artifacts. Revenue from the sales is often used to finance various types of terrorist and criminal groups that also use the trade to launder other illicit income, including drug and weapons trafficking. Here are some numbers for you. Every day, there are at least 100,000 antiquities for sale online valued at over $10 million, estimates Neil Brody, who is a senior research fellow in endangered archaeology at the University of Oxford. After researching antiquities offerings at leading online marketplaces, Mr. Brody estimated that up to 80% of the objects offered have no legal provenance, meaning they are most likely looted or fake. Um, and then the Wall Street Journal also sourced uh, opinions from other authorities. They did not name those authorities, but they quoted them as saying that, that Brody's estimates sound accurate. Alberto Rodao Martin an officer at the Criminal Intelligence Unit of Spain's Civil Guard Police Agency said, quote, Internet sales platforms upgrade the difficulty of the investigations. Now looters in Spain send packages of ancient coins directly to collectors in the U.S. We're overwhelmed, end quote. So what do these social media platforms themselves have to say about all this? Well, turns out uh, not a whole lot. Facebook, Amazon, eBay, and WhatsApp. Jeez, selling stuff on WhatsApp. They all say they have explicit policies prohibiting the posting of stolen objects and mostly rely on reports of stolen material. All right. Facebook says when content is reported as stolen, the company removes it from the site. Amazon Great. says those who don't follow its guidelines are subject to action. Oh, action. Including removing their account. Oh. Amazon removed an ad for an ancient Roman coin and two others after the Wall Street Journal contacted the company about the origin of the objects earlier uh, in whenever this was written earlier. Um, in recent years, eBay has agreed to provide the customs service in countries where it operates with contacts of sellers of suspicious items, according to an anti-terrorism official familiar with eBay's practices. Uh, the eBay took that action after Western counterterrorism officials expressed concern that looted antiquities might be ending up on the site. Uh, Wolfgang Weber, who's the global head of regulatory policy at eBay, says, we have zero tolerance for illicit items like looted antiquities. Also, I just want to jump in here and yeah. like given like the date that some of these articles were written and mm -hmm. that, that we're finding, I don't want anyone to think that we think that the Islamic State invented looting and like selling oh, of course an selling antiquities to fund uh, terrorism. But it really it seemed that way in the media, where it's just like 
did you know they've been doing this? And it's like, yeah, that's what's been going on for a for long a time. While. Yeah. And so in lots of places. So I just and we're gonna get into other things soon, like other places and yeah. and situations soon. But read but listener, don't think that we think that it's just there and just them. Nope. Go on. We don't. And it isn't. Um, and this isn't even the first time that we've discussed trafficked materials popping up on social media. Um, you can go to our episode page and check out our episode titled The Unsettling Business of Curating Human Remains to learn about the great work done by Damien Hoffer and his colleagues around monitoring and countering the human remains trade on Instagram and, and elsewhere on the internets. Um, and then finally, we have a little story that I dug up. Uh, the Case of the Pharaoh's Honey Trap. Was there a baby in it? There was no baby in that honey trap. Spoilers Um, for episode. Huh? Spoilers for episode three. Three, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so Tim Haynes, who this article felt compelled to tell us, is 53 years old. An amateur... (laughs) An amateur antique collector in Worcestershire, England, said he received a Facebook message from a stranger who identified himself as Salah Abdo in Egypt in August. Mr. Abdo was offering a large 55-pound stone pharaoh's head for £22,000, which for you American listeners is You said it was 55 pounds. Hmm? You said it was 55 pounds. Oh, I see the joke you made there. Ha ha ha! Their currency is the same as a word for weight. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this uh, 55 and 22,000 pound. Uh, Pharaoh's head and also various washabti, which are those little Egyptian funerary figures that go into the tomb. It's like it's like like ancient Egyptian weebles or like Lego people. The little the weebles wobble, but they don't. Not sponsored. Uh, Mr. Haynes, a Possibly staff not member, not in f- business anymore. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Mr. Haynes, a staff member for a British politician, began messaging with Mr. Abdo, um, and he wrote taking a line from indiana jones here the the head if it's genuine mr haynes wrote belongs in the egyptian museum according to a copy of the message that he later disclosed he wrote to a guy named sala yeah it's very indiana jones Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and then uh, mr abdo wrote back no i don't work with this this is from our land the head is from the back of karnak temple if you're interested we give good price uh that is quoting uh in egypt All artifacts uncovered after 1983 are the property of the government. Most countries have similar laws. And Mr. Abdo didn't respond to requests for comment. Uh, Neither did the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities. So um, obviously Mr. Haynes didn't go ahead and buy that for his garden. But uh, I don't know what happened to that pharaoh head. Yeah, Or or the Washabti. But uh, so all of that was from a Wall Street Journal article, and it seems that the Wall Street Journal hasn't been pulling any punches when it comes to reporting on art crime. Art um, crime. Because there's also another story of um, <laughs> in which uh, they talk about longtime dealers Ali and Hisham Abu Tam being under scrutiny as authorities in multiple countries look into how Islamic State finances itself by trafficking in ancient audi- objects. So, like. Okay, Wall Street Journal, we get it. Um, but follow up to that. Um, <laughs> That's great. And this is from artsy.net. Um, 
a defamation suit brought by prominent antiquities dealer Hisham Abutam against the publishers of the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones. Did you know that? I learned it today. When we subscribed to it. And we got an email from Dow Jones. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, oh. Um, So the defamation suit was dismissed in New York State Supreme Court recently. Uh, because in 2017, the Wall Street Journal published an article reporting that law enforcement officials were investigating whether or not Hisham Abutam and his brother Ali had brought had bought and sold artifacts looted by ISIS. The terrorist organization is notorious for looting and selling ancient artifacts from Iraq and Syria. But again, they're not the only ones. That's not the only place. That's also <laughs> not the only thing they're notorious for. Yeah, they're. I mean, if it was, God, I wish it were only art crime. I know. God. Um, Hisham Abutam, who maintains the innocence of himself and his company, says his gallery sales have suffered immensely as a direct result of the article. Mm. While the Wall Street Journal article was explicit that, quote, neither the neither of the Abutam brothers has been charged with any wrongdoing related to these investigations, end quote, it showed that law enforcement agencies in several countries were investigating their dealings. After Abutam sued, Dow Jones asserted that it stands by the article. So if you think it's just like shady outfits and anonymous people on the dark web that are out here trafficking and profiting off of looted archaeological materials, well, bless your heart. You are wrong. Um, <laughs> Let's look at some names you've probably heard of before involved in this world. And I will hand it over to Anna because, like, I watched this story <laughs> unfold in real time and was enraged. Like, I, like, cried. I was so mad. And then I felt mad because I was crying about yep this. So and so, Anna, read cycle. it. And I will just sigh just, in Listeners, the I, want, I want you all to just go ahead and imagine this along with a soundtrack of muffled internal screaming okay here we go so a bidding war at christie's in 2018 sent the price of a 3000 year old stone relief from seven million dollars to more than 28 million dollars setting a world record for ancient assyrian artworks and raising fears among some archaeologists that soaring prices will fuel the market for looted antiquities as well as legally acquired ones these seven foot that's large where are you gonna put that the seven-foot bas-relief from the Palace of Nimrud, which is in present-day Iraq, was acquired in the 19th century, long before there were laws prohibiting the wholesale removal and export of archaeological treasures. Christie's described it as, quote, the finest example of Assyrian art to have come onto the market in decades, end quote. Only a few pieces from Nimrud are on display in Iraqi museums, and what was left of the site was smashed and looted by ISIS after it occupied northern Iraq four years ago. This week's multi-million dollar Christie's sale, some experts warn, may lead to more instances of looting. McGuire Gibson, who's a professor of Mesopotamian archaeology at the University of Chicago, says, This is going to spark a whole bunch of new looting because the prices of antiquities will go up. Besides the stuff that was destroyed in Nimrud, I'm sure parts of it were taken out and are on the international market. It's going to make the price of all Mesopotamian antiquities go up. Gibson goes on to say that fragments of other Assyrian palaces, along with cuneiform tablets and cylinder seals, have increasingly been showing up on the market with fake documents showing the country of origin. And sometimes you can find the documents from the museum they used to be in. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's like a matching process. But this makes me so mad. Also, next up, one of my favorite things to so all of the summer of 2017, I told every Lyft driver I had about this story because I couldn't <laughs> get over it. In a little I section imagine- we call 
Hobby Lobby gets real tomb Robbie. <laughs> I'm just imagining you like cackling in a lift now. Oh, people are like, oh yeah, Hobby Lobby. Ugh, like birth control. And I'm like, Hobby Lobby funds terrorism. And they're like, what? And I'm just like, let me tell you. Well, and tell let me listeners. tell you. <laughs> so this was in July 2016. <laughs> the Justice Department, the the one here in the U.S., yep, um, announced one. that the crafting giant Hobby Lobby Incorporated <laughs> has agreed to forfeit thousands of ancient Mesopotamian artifacts that it had illegally imported from Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> and lead. you thought you thought they just had like major beef with the Affordable Care Act? No. Turns out. <laughs> not just that <laughs> not just that um along with a hefty three million dollar payment this concludes a federal investigation that has been going on since 2011 <laughs> when united states customs agents seized an incoming shipment of cuneiform tablets labeled quote handmade clay tiles end quote and headed for the hobby lobby headquarters in oklahoma city maybe they were um, for like decor you know like shiplap these tablets form part of the private collection of biblical artifacts purchased by Hobby Lobby, 40,000 items strong, which 40, was destined items. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, which was destined for eventual display at the Museum of the Bible, which now is in DC and yep. you can go to it. Yes, you can. Um the Museum of the Bible was founded and funded by the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, and they continue to pl play a role in a central role in its administration, fundraising, and mission. And editorial note, and also the educational merits of it. We've talked about this in um, old news. There mm -hmm. was a story about oh, how yeah. they play mm -hmm. fast and loose with archaeology. Oh, I I didn't remember that. Now I'm mad you again. Didn't? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? Um, Steve Green, the president of Hobby Lobby. Um, you'd think he'd be like Hobby. God, I wish his <laughs> Mr. name was Hobby. Bobby. I wish his name was Bobby Hobby, the owner of Hobby Lobby. Um, I thought that um, Hobby, the the name on many buildings in greater Houston. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought that Hobby Lobby was named for the like for the Hobby family and friend of the show, Hannah, laughed until she cried at like what a <laughs> dumb thing that that was for me to think because she's like, no, it's just it rhymes. Yeah. And Hobby Lobby. Like, you know that they sell crafting materials, yeah. right? Oh, I know. But <laughs> okay. Steve, Steve Green Hobby, the president of Hobby Lobby, said in a statement. When we first broke the story of this investigation in 2015, it was suggested to us that this was merely a matter of incomplete paperwork. It is now abundantly clear that this was untrue. We should have exercised more oversight and carefully questioned how the acquisitions were handled. Yes, Steve. Okay, Steve. Even before these purchases, Green and his partners had been given clear guidelines by antiquities law expert Patty Gerstenblith, who is awesome, by the way. It probably was like a situation where like, if I wanted to buy this, how do I go about doing it? And she's like, well, here's how you don't. Have you considered this way? And he's like, nope. Nope, I have not. Indeed. Nevertheless, <laughs> um, they proceeded to purchase artifacts of dubious origin from unscrupulous sellers and then import them from Israel and the United Arab Emirates with falsified documentation designed to avoid customs inspection. Pause for screams. Go ahead. The particular legal issue of falsified import papers is merely the tip of a much larger ethical 
iceberg, or as I like to call it, a yikesberg. The real issue here is the black market in looted antiquities, a market that has loomed beneath the surface of storied museum collections and private holdings for many years, but that became especially visible during the first Iraq war and the period of regional destabilization that followed, including the second Iraq war and the Islamic (laughs) State. (laughs) Oh, hello and welcome to our podcast about, turns out, the Islamic State. (laughs) Nope. The issue here goes beyond Hobby Lobby. The black market and illicit antiquities from the Middle East can be traced back to real world violence and wholesale destruction of cultural heritage. Museums may think that the damage associated with illegal antiquities is in the past by the time an artifact reaches their hands, but this is untrue. Are you listening, Steve Green? As long as the market continues, the damage remains. But fear not, listeners, even though this is me talking... All is not as bleak as we've made it seem so far, because Anna wrote this script, so it ends on a high note. (laughs) There is a lot being done to combat looting, so don't worry. From outreach efforts bringing awareness to the public, to to local communities working to preserve their own heritage, etc., etc. One really cool thing that's been ongoing for a few years now is the work of researcher Sarah Parchak. Apologies if that is not how you say your name. I reached out to her on Twitter to ask how she pronounces that C, but uh, no response. So we'll go with Parchak and and our sincere apologies if that is um, uh, incorrect. Yeah. Sarah Parchak and her team of colleagues. <laughs> oh, oh, you got me. <laughs> uh, okay. So, and this is so cool. Okay. Also, she is just phenomenal to follow on Twitter. She is she has a lot of really great science content, but then also she's very um, outspoken and snarky and great. And she, you can uh, follow her at at Indie from Space, and that should tell you a little bit about what she does. But if it doesn't, don't worry. I'm gonna tell you what she does. <laughs> Exploiting. Subtle and to the naked eye often invisible differences in topography, geology, and plant life, Um, Parchak, a University of Alabama at Birmingham professor of anthropology, uses satellite imagery and other remote sensing tools to find forgotten archaeological sites all over the world. Her own particular specialty area is ancient Egypt, and she and her team have uncovered, here we go, more than 3,000 ancient settlements, more than a dozen pyramids, and over a thousand lost tombs, and uncovered the the city grid of Tanis, which uh, you may recall was a plot point in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it's really it, trending today in this episode. I know. Uh, after the Arab Spring in 2011, Parchak created via satellite a first-of-its-kind countrywide looting map, documenting how plundered tombs first appeared as little black dots on the landscape and then spread like a rash. At the Roman harbor of Portus, she found traces of the remains of an amphitheater, and then she was able to point that out to the archaeologists who had spent their whole careers digging right over it. Burn! (laughs) Hey, you you guys. (laughs) Did you know? She has mapped the ancient Dacian capital of what is now Romania, and using hyperspectral camera data, aided in the ongoing search for prehistoric hominid fossils in eroded Kenyan lake beds. Just like what hyperspectral camera data what? yes indeed i hear you thinking listeners and along with amber <laughs> what is hyperspectral camera data don't worry i got you so our human eyeballs 
we can see colors of visible light mostly in three bands, sort of separated out by wavelengths. Uh, we've got long wavelengths, which we see as red, medium wavelengths, which we see as green, and short wavelengths, which we see as blue. So the lenses of our eyes divide light into more or less those three sections of color. But you would know if you um, did any experiments in elementary school or high school with shining light through a prism that you can break light up into lots of different kinds of wavelengths depending on the lens. So spectral imaging divides the light spectrum into many, many more bands than we can see with our human eyes. This technique of dividing images into bands can then be extended beyond the visible and analyzed by computer software because we can't see it. <laughs> so, but computers can. But computers can. In hyperspectral imaging, the recorded spectra have very, very fine wavelength resolution, and they cover a really wide range of wavelengths. And so um, different surfaces reflect different types of wavelengths, different colors of light. And if you have an idea of the kind of surface that you're looking for and the kind of wavelengths and colors that you that are going to be reflected by those things, then you can set up a computer program saying, here are these satellite images. I want you to filter them and look for this type of thing. This is something that was done by Bill Saturno, who was at Boston University when I was there. And he is a Mayanist. He studies uh, Mayan civilizations in Guatemala. And um, he used satellite images and a particular light fi filter to um, figure out when trees were stressed out. This is really cool. So um, often Mayan civilizations are covered in plaster. They used limestone plaster for just about everything for, for building. They, they made plazas, you know, just like covered in plaster, things like that. Once people are no longer living in those big cities and trees kind of overtake them again, it is more difficult for the trees to grow through the plaster. And so trees that are growing through or have their roots in Mayan plaster uh, remains uh, are stressed out and they their leaves are a slightly different color that's not visible to the human eye, but what? it is filterable through satellite imagery. So he was able to use satellite imagery of these forests and to pick out shapes, like to use this filtered light to pick out shapes where the trees were slightly different colors because they were stressed out and trying to grow through Maya limestone. And he could pick out the shapes and he, he found a number of um, cities. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, so that's that's one way that it's that satellite imagery is is used. But back to Dr. Parchak's work in 2016 alone, Parchak found satellite images that revealed in what this article refers to as desolate Newfoundland. But like, maybe surely. they got dumped there. Yeah, that would but do it. Not all of Newfoundland, surely, is desolate. The satellite images revealed what many believe to be the second known Viking site in North America, as well as a mammoth ceremonial platform, not nothing to do with mammoths. Definitely just... read it as a ceremony involving mammoths. Nope. No, there are no mammoths and was involved like... in the ceremony. It's just very, very big. And it's in Petra, which is in Jordan. So it would be weird that there were mammoths there, maybe. Anyway, she found this crazy big ceremonial platform in Petra that millions of visitors to the famous uh, Jordanian city, again, also in an Indiana Jones movie. Um, it's actually a Nabataean city. I know. It's not. It's not Jordanian. It just happens the to be Hashemite in modern Kingdom of Jordan. Jordan. Oh, my goodness. Um, she found that. 
she is now busy satellite mapping the whole of Peru for a crowdsourcing project called Global Explorer with no E, it's just the X, which debuted in 2017. And we will include a link to a TED Talk by Dr. Parchak on how um, her hunt for lost cities in Peru is going. So, my goodness, very exciting. And there it is, listeners. Thank you again to Holly for for uh, the opportunity to give you this very brief account of the underbelly of archaeology. But if this talk of art crime and art law and provenance and provenience and satellites, if that got you hooked, we have quite the lengthy reading list for you in our show notes. So you can dive right into it at your leisure. Thank you all for listening. We will be back in your ears soon, and you can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. Yeah. And over on the social media, um, where we advise you not to buy looted antiquities, um, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And we are not selling any human remains there. Nope. Uh, and all of our social media is collected together at thedirtpod.com. And if you want to contact us, you can send us an email at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. And that is at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.